Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today, I'm speaking with Max Rose, founder of the group Sheriffs for Trusting Communities. Imagine a law enforcement officer with vast power and authority, little accountability, and no meaningful term limits. That's called a sheriff. The thing is, it's an elected position, but many of us don't look far enough down the ballot or even know enough to cast a vote. Nationwide, sheriffs make 2 million arrests every year, they control our jails, and they have immense power in the civil arena when it comes to things like evictions, gun permits, and civil asset forfeitures. Max and I talk about the role sheriffs play in mass incarceration and deportation, the ties of some to the white supremacy movement, and what needs to be done to reform the office. Finally, Max gives us the questions to ask of our own sheriffs to make sure they're reflecting our values. Now here's my conversation with Max Rose. Max Rose, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you for having me, Nancy. Max, let's start about you telling me about your organization, Sheriffs for Trusting Communities. Sheriffs for Trusting Communities works with organizers around the country to do three things. One is help folks understand the role of the sheriff and their power in the immigration and mass incarceration machines. Second is to work with those organizers to elect a new generation of sheriffs who fit local communities' visions. And then third is to hold the sheriffs accountable to their promises and to make sure long-term we can imagine a world where there are no sheriffs and fewer people are in jail and nobody is deported. So what led to your focus on sheriffs? I mean, as I was doing research for this, I was struck by the relative scarcity of information on this. It seems like a long historical law enforcement role. One thing that I always think about in the way that I got into this work is that it is intentionally personal and also that there have been people who have been advocating for a different role for the sheriff as long as the sheriff has existed in the U.S., mostly folks of color who've risked their own lives. And I got into it really just three years ago, post-election. I was mourning alongside others and acknowledging what folks who I love and care about had said for a long time, that we have these deep currents of racism in our country. And the first raids under the Trump administration happened in February 2017. They came into several cities around the country, and one of them was Alamance County, North Carolina, Burlington, where I have several close friends and where the sheriff is a guy named Terry Johnson. Terry Johnson was tried alongside Joe Arpaio in the Department of Justice case. His deputy said on the record that Terry Johnson would tell them to go get those taco eaters. He stopped Latinx drivers four times more than white drivers. And so this fight started as me and some friends there who thought of this one sheriff as a force for terror in the community and started as a personal battle alongside them. So I grew up in a city and the term sheriff to me sounds like something from an old Western or Robin Hood and the sheriff of Nottingham. Both do bring to mind an image of a law enforcement officer with an independent streak. 
who operates outside of other authorities. I mean, is that accurate still? And just bring me up to date. What's the role of sheriffs today and what kinds of communities do they serve? We'll start with the image of sheriff. And the best thing that's ever been written about the role of sheriff came from James Baldwin. He wrote that the Republic hired the sheriff to keep the Republic white, to keep it free from sin. And he went on to say that the sheriff believes that it is his role and his alone to impose law and order. So sheriffs have always been this lone individual figure, mostly white men. That remains true today. And while they've disappeared a little bit in our public imagination, their ability to really hurt and tear apart communities has remained the same. So they do three primary things nowadays. One is they act the same way as police do. They patrol rural areas and suburban areas. They make roughly 2 million arrests each year. They, like police, are a major part of state-sanctioned violence. 400 people die each year at the hands of guns from sheriff's deputies, shootings from sheriff's deputies. So that's their patrol duty. They can decide who to arrest, when to arrest, how to arrest those folks. The second role of the sheriff is that of jailer. Sheriffs control most of the jails around the country, whether you're arrested by a police officer, whether you're arrested by a sheriff's deputy, 11 million entries into a jail each year, most of those in jails controlled by sheriffs. There are major exceptions to that, Nancy, as you know, New York City's Rikers Island and their broader jail system is not controlled by a sheriff. But in the vast majority of both rural areas and cities, sheriffs control the jail. And that's critically important because with the decimation of our mental health system in the United States, jails have become warehouses for folks with severe mental health issues and substance use disorders. And they're not equipped to play that role. A thousand people die in jails each year. We should have fewer jails. We should have smaller jails. But most sheriffs day-to-day advocate for building bigger jails. And then the third really critical role is the civil role. So they, for example, are the front lines of evictions. They carry out evictions. They issue concealed carry permits. They, in many cases, are responsible for civil asset forfeiture. If somebody is charged with a crime, a sheriff will take charge of their belongings and be in charge of selling those belongings. Those are the three critical roles you'll find in different places. They play some very weird roles. California, the sheriff is also the coroner. Louisiana, the sheriff is also the tax collector. But in terms of the day-to-day that really makes a change in folks' lives, it's policing, jailing, and civil. And then the other part of my question about what communities they serve, I mean, you mentioned New York City, where I've never noticed a sheriff, but I take it it's more rural areas. Is that correct? So sheriffs are in 47 out of the 50 states in the country. In my hometown of Durham, North Carolina, which is a mid-sized city, they are in charge of the jail. They're in charge of every jail in North Carolina, most of the jails in New York, outside of New York City. And so they are more responsible for their patrol in the rural areas, but as jailers, they are in, in most major counties around the country. It's the rule more than the exception. And also, I read that Certain states, maybe only one, but still allow the sheriff this ability to create a posse. I mean, talk about Wild West. Tell me about that. This gets to your earlier question, Nancy. Sheriffs have this huge independent power. I'm not the expert in this, and there's amazing work coming out of political research associates and other groups around the country who have thought hard about this. But they often 
in the United States history and through today have described what they call as constitutional power. They call themselves constitutional sheriffs because in most states, the sheriff is written into the constitution and have used that title and that role to say that they can do everything from not enforce rules or laws from the state, not enforce rules or laws from the federal government. Just in the last two to three months, you've seen sheriffs say that mask wearing ordinances are unconstitutional, that they won't send deputies into Portland unless people better respect law enforcement. It is a institution that often thinks that, as Baldwin said, it is its job and it alone to impose the law. And that is not a healthy nor reasonable system if we want justice in this country. So who do they answer to? and What kind of oversight is there? Sheriffs would say that they answer just to the Constitution and to the voters as a part of that constitutional because power. Because they're elected for because the most part. Elected. There are other mechanisms which we often and are increasingly helping organizers to think about. Their funders are usually county boards, county commissioners, county supervisors. While sheriffs would say they do not answer to those bodies, those bodies do in most states have substantial control over the budget. And the power to remove a sheriff differs state by state. Almost in all cases, the voters can decide to replace their sheriff. Most sheriffs are up for re-election every four years. But between those elections, some governors have the power to remove sheriffs. Sometimes it's the attorney general. Sometimes it's a county judge or district attorney. It differs pretty dramatically state by state. Rarely is that power exercised. We need more county commissioners and higher officials to rein in sheriffs who are using their power to tear apart communities. What's their tenure normally? What's the average length of time that a sheriff stays in office? So the estimates for this differ greatly. I've heard as high as 22 years, as low as 10 to 12 years. Terms are usually four years. Only a couple of states limit the number of terms a sheriff can be in place. The bottom line big picture that political scientists have pointed out is that most sheriffs get in office, they get reelected every time they run for reelection. And then when they want to leave, they appoint a chief deputy or somebody from within the office. They either step down early or essentially anoint the next sheriff. So while it is ostensibly a democratic position in the past, it has just been a hierarchical hereditary role. And are there certain states where sheriffs have more expansive roles than others? The role of the sheriff can differ state by state and county by county. So it's incumbent on folks to look at their specific sheriff. Which ones have the most? Well, Arizona, I'm assuming, because of Joe Arpaio. Arizona sheriffs have enormous power. I would say that there's different levers of power. The role of policing and jailing is almost universal, and it's in most states where there are sheriffs. There's also the political power of sheriffs the ability to say what is safe, what is not safe, to target certain communities at the county level. And then there's the enormous power of state sheriffs associations. So sheriffs come together in state sheriffs associations, almost always to advocate for more punitive criminal justice system. In one case last year, the sheriff's association was at the front lines advocating opposing a law that would have prevented the shackling of pregnant women. They typically advocate for retaining every bit of power that's possible. I know that's a non-answer to your question, Nancy, but the 
The Louisiana sheriffs, North Carolina, my home state, they have huge power. It differs a little bit state by state. Got it. You mentioned that they can be voted out. It doesn't seem that they often are. But what kind of voter turnout is there and awareness of these races is there? The best data, the data that I really like to cite on this comes out of North Carolina. And Elon University did a poll in which they found that the county sheriff is better known in rural areas than even the most high-profile North Carolinians, Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams, who, for those of y'all, if you know Nancy, are the Duke and UNC basketball coaches. So 50% of rural folks in North Carolina can name their sheriff. That's higher than the U.S. senator. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, and, and in bigger cities, it's less, but still pretty high. I think the number in North Carolina is somewhere around 32 33%. So turnout differs dramatically. Sometimes sheriff elections are on on years. There's more than 900 sheriff elections this year who will be on the ballot the same day as Donald Trump. So in part, the election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden will lead to really high turnout on that day. One thing that we have found in working with groups around the country who care about this is that when you talk to voters about the issues at stake in the sheriff election, the issues at stake are deportations. They're folks dying in jail, their arrests, you get greater turnout than you might if you talk to folks about more abstract positions, even state legislative and congressional races. So the sheriff is better known than we think it is, particularly if we're looking from where I live now in DC or New York City. And for those who don't know about the sheriff, it could be a way to get people really excited about the electoral process. We saw that the last couple of years where organizers around the country really were successful in changing the narrative and pushing old sheriffs and shaming old sheriffs and getting new folks in who have not fulfilled every promise that they gave to these local organizers, but who are better than their predecessors. Well, that's exciting and at least to move in the right direction. But in general, it sounds like sheriffs have wide-ranging powers, massively wide-ranging powers not much accountability, and very long terms. So let's talk about good sheriffs and bad sheriffs. What would an example of a good sheriff be to you? Nancy, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, and particularly because I've been learning more from folks who have for decades argued that our policing system needs to dramatically change, if not go away altogether. And I think of the history of sheriffs, which we haven't gotten into. They really built their power around convict leasing, around buying and selling formerly enslaved people, and continued to gain power to a point where they were central in our history of lynchings and, and terrorizing black communities in the South, but in other parts of the country as well. And now in this really deep role in our deportation machine and as part of state sanctioned violence, long term, I'm not sure there is such thing as a good or bad sheriff. I think it's a system that is fundamentally repaired and probably shouldn't exist in the form that it currently exists. Short term, I can give you a lot of answers that come from working deeply with folks around the country who have been pressuring their sheriffs. We want sheriffs to no longer voluntarily tear apart immigrant families. We want sheriffs who advocate for building smaller jails. We want sheriffs who will make sure that the folks who go in and out of those jails are protected and don't pass away on their watch. 
We want sheriffs who will advocate for fewer arrests, who know that possession of marijuana or most drug possession isn't something that is hurting their community and that actually putting people in jail for those crimes makes the community less safe long term. And then sheriffs who will use their voice and use their power to shift resources from sheriff's offices to non-emergency response. And this is something that is coming from the Black Lives Matter movement, a real advocacy that says we put law enforcement in roles that should not be played by law enforcement. And so sheriffs should be in the front line saying we are not mental health providers. We are not substance use disorder experts. Those roles should be played by other institutions in our community. So you mentioned mass incarceration. Let's go into that a little. Walk me through how the action of an individual sheriff might exacerbate that issue. Let's go through the two roles of the sheriff that we've talked through. First, it's the role of policing. Um, Sheriffs make two million arrests every year, and they have huge amounts of discretion on who they arrest when they arrest folks. A ton of those arrests are for drug offenses or for low-level misdemeanors. The sheriff in Leon County, Florida, which is right next to Tallahassee, dramatically decreased the number of people in jail and going to federal prison by saying that he wouldn't arrest for almost any drug offenses. But that's not true of most sheriffs. We see a lot of folks who are locking up in law and order sheriffs. And then the second is the role of the jail. So there's two key stakes there. A well-run jail can dramatically reduce recidivism, can make sure folks are going back into the community connected to the right community health providers, whether that be for substance use or mental health issues. And a sheriff who opposes mass incarceration, and this takes from amazing research from the Vera Institute, will only take a step back and say that what we know about the trends in mass incarceration in the country are that rural communities are driving increases at this moment. That comes from amazing research from Vera. The way that that works is rural sheriffs are demanding bigger jails. They're saying that the stakes of those bigger jails are community safety. They're funding those jails through federal grants, through state grants, through partnership with neighboring counties. And so not only in those rural communities are the sheriffs, the police, they're the jailers as well. And we can't in mass incarceration without stopping that trend that Bureau has pointed out. And what about deportation? How are sheriffs involved in that? The way that our internal deportation system works is that folks end up in the system through two primary ways. One is the one that we think more of, which is ICE raids, ICE arresting people directly on the street. The more common way, which accounts for 47% of deportations from within the United States, is somebody is picked up, they're brought to the jail. They're brought to jail on DWI, on driving without a license, on some other charge. ICE asks the county sheriff who controls that jail to hold that person. ICE then comes and picks up that person from the jail, and they go into ICE custody directly from a jail controlled by the sheriff. And the sheriff has enormous autonomy on when and how and if they hand those folks over at ICE. So some states, Texas, Florida, have put really strict requirements on sheriffs to work with ICE, which still give them some wiggle room that 
Immigrant Legal Resource Center and others have pointed out. Others, California being the first, have prevented sheriffs from working closely with ICE. Even that law did not go far enough. And so progressive states can and should follow the lead of California. Let's talk about the link between sheriffs and white supremacy. Is this the constitutional sheriff or does it go beyond that? The constitutional sheriff's movement, which Joe Arpaio was a part of and which PRA, I believe, is linked around 350 sheriffs around the country, roughly one-third of sheriffs, excuse me, one-tenth of sheriffs to that movement, is a manifestation of the role of sheriffs as white supremacists. But it is not, by any means, the only link. I think it's important always when we talk about our criminal justice system to name that policing and sheriff's deputies as we know it started to control black and brown folks, particularly during the time of slavery. The entire origin and the entire system, we have to say, is linked in a part and is infused with white supremacy. The explicit links between sheriffs and constitutional sheriff's movement or between their deputies and other white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys, that has come to light because of a lot of good investigative reporting in the last few years. But the role that they play and the function they play is hard to separate from our history of white supremacy in the United States. It's really troubling. So let's talk about how you're going to create change. I mean, the very name of your organization, Sheriffs for Trusting Communities, implies that there's a lack of trust between sheriffs and residents. What does creating trust look like to you? Our work is incredibly place-based. It starts with folks in a community, folks particularly who have been directly affected by the sheriff's office, whose families are at risk of deportation or who they themselves have been in jail. And it starts with helping them understand the role of the sheriff and reimagine that office. I do not believe that a national group like men can or should set a vision for every community around the country, but that people in these communities have the answers and have the vision. So that's the first part. The second part is helping them understand the electoral process, what role an election or a budget hearing or other moments that can be leveraged can play in the change that they want to see in that community. And then it's really helping them co-govern or really lead the sheriff's office where they want it to go. So there's deep policy work, there's deep organizational change work that happens within sheriff's office. If somebody comes in and wants to change something, then it takes a lot of really hard thinking and a lot of brave leadership. We're primarily focused on the first and second and more and more on policy that comes out of that vision. But we believe that starts with local change. We see enough of that local change. We show enough examples, then sheriffs around the country will pay attention. And other communities will see what folks have done and try to emulate that. You mentioned or sort of alluded before to you think that the office of sheriff should just be abolished. Connecticut abolished their sheriff's office in 2000. Is that your dream? Is that the best resolution of this? If not, what reforms do we just want to see across the board? What we can do, because we have the vote in these sheriff's offices, is use them in the short term to help build a different model of what can be and what is possible and to push the rest of the system in the way we want it to go. 
I'm still looking for the academic to do a study of Connecticut who, as you mentioned, abolished their sheriff system. I haven't seen the evidence yet that it's fixed the fundamental problems here, which are that we have too much policing, we have too many people who end up in jail, and that it's not stopping the things that we want it to stop, which is violence and harm. So I don't advocate for abolishing the office short term because I think it's such an important, we can use it as a lever to change the rest of the system. And do you want to talk about any of the more important races going on this year? As you know, Nancy, there are sheriff's elections in more than 900 counties around the country. Michigan, Ohio, Florida, Georgia, West Virginia, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Arizona, all of their sheriffs are up this year. I would encourage folks in every place that has an election this year and every place that has an election in 2021 and 2022 to begin to ask really tough questions of the sheriff's office and of the counties. So that's the first thing I'd say that there's a role that every person who listens to this can play. Does your sheriff contribute to the deportation machine? Are they advocating for a bigger jail or for alternatives to incarceration? Are they over-policing their communities? And who's been most affected by those offices? And how do we help them lead the vision of what else is possible? So that's the first thing I'd say. And then to your question, as I mentioned, we have a lot of elections this year, a couple that I would highlight for folks to pay attention to. Um, include Gwinnett and Cobb County, Georgia, which are the two big northern Atlanta suburbs where there is, in both cases, sheriffs who have what's called a 287G agreement, a very tight agreement between the sheriff's office and Immigration Customs Enforcement ICE. Both have had a number of really brutal deaths in the jail in the last few years that deserve attention. And then the other I'll point you towards is in Cincinnati, Ohio, Hamilton County where the Democratic candidate is named Charmaine McGuffey. She's advocating against building a new jail. She's advocating for decreasing cooperation with Immigration Customs Enforcement. And her opponent is a, a really brutal Republican named Bruce Hoffbauer, who himself was responsible for the murder of a young man about 25 years ago and is now a Republican candidate for sheriff in Cincinnati. I bring y'all's attention to those three and while encouraging folks to get involved and get interested and excited about their own share. Great. Well, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Max. This has been super enlightening. I mean, just learning about this powerful and very troubling institution and what we can do about it. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me, Nancy. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.